So uh, grand rounds uh, this morning is going to be uh, Dr. Nathaniel Robbins talking about thresholds in clinical neurology. Um, there are no conflicts of interest to be disclosed. Um, the CME uh, sign-in code is uh, published around the room. Um, and uh, Dr. Uh, Robbins is going to be introduced this morning uh, by Dr. Cohen, Jeffrey Cohen. Uh, he got his uh, MD at the University of Oklahoma, uh, residency training in neurology at Mount Sinai, uh, went on over a course of time to do two fellowships, uh, one in uh, clinical and research neurology at MGH and another in peripheral nerve diseases at the Mayo Clinic, uh, and later got a master's in healthcare administration from the University of Denver. Uh, he came to Dartmouth in 2000, and he is now a uh, full professor of neurology, chairman of the Department of Neurology, uh, senior vice president of the neurology uh, service line at DHMC, and is a highly accomplished physician, scholar, scientist, and artist. Uh, thank you. So. So actually, I do have a disclaimer. I'm held responsible for nothing my home state of Oklahoma does. But, you know, <laughs> so please don't blame me for, uh, for that state. Um, anyway, it's my pleasure to introduce Nate. Um, you know, as a chair, you look back on the people that you hire and you, you know, hopefully say, wow. And uh, Nate was really a high draft pick. Uh, uh, Golden State wanted him, the Cavaliers wanted him, but we were able to, to lure him. Um, he went to Brown, and then he did his uh, MD degree at Albert Einstein. And when I was in New York, we always thought that the neurology residents at Einstein were different than us. They were smarter. But anyway, and then he did his... Uh, neurology residency at UCSF, which was really the premier program with uh, the partners program, MGH and the Brigham. He was my fellow last year, and he would critique me on my care of patients and question me, which I really enjoy, because at my stage of the game, uh, you're worried about dementia. You're also worried about not really staying up on things, and, and Nate would push me and question, and it's great. Uh, he does a lot of creative things. Uh, he did a project uh, in Thailand with uh, HIV and headaches. He's involved now in looking at autonomic function in dementia. Um, I just really enjoy him. He, he has these projects in China, Thailand, and we've advised him not to go to Russia or North Korea. So take it away. Thank you very much, Jeff. Give me one minute to set up everything here. Okay. Uh, thank you, Jeff, for the wonderful introduction. And thank you, everyone, for giving me the opportunity to talk today. So I'm going to be talking about thresholds in clinical neurology and Hopefully that will become a little clearer what I'm talking about over time. All right, so first, uh, no financial interest to disclose. I do have a couple uh, research projects that are really not related to the current talk. Oops, that's sensitive. 
All right, so first, uh, introduce a few concepts about thresholds, uh, rhythms, and then this concept of summation in the nervous system. I'll, I'll mostly be talking about these things in the context of uh, three different episodic clinical phenomenon that we see all the time. Uh, delirium, migraines, and epilepsy. I'll spend a lot of time on delirium. I think we mo know the most about that, believe it or not. Uh, talk about risk factors for delirium and then what tips you over. So kind of the underlying substrate and the insults that will tip you into uh, an episode of delirium. Talk a little bit about migraines, um, including triggers, epilepsy, and I'll bring some new research into this from a friend and colleague of mine about rhythms of the brain, which is very interesting. Oops. And then finally, I'll finish, if we have time, with some of my research on a different threshold, uh, sensory perception thresholds, and particularly the role of cognition in sensation which I apologize to the neurologist who may have heard some of this already, the last bit at least. So uh, what is a threshold? A threshold is something above which something takes place and below which it does not, okay? And summation, I got this out of Merriam-Webster, uh, it's a cumulative action or effect where a sequence of stimuli individually don't get you over the threshold, but cumulatively, they're able to produce, and in Merriam-Webster, it says a nerve response, which I was surprised. All right, so some of you may remember your neurophysiology. This is an action potential. Let's see if this works. All right. So a couple things. You know, your nerve cells sit with this negative membrane potential. And when excitatory inputs come in, they have to add up. You have a summation of postsynaptic potentials, which if it reaches a threshold, you have an all-or-none action potential. If they don't reach the threshold, it kind of peters off and nothing happens. Okay, so on a physiologic level, you might be familiar with the concepts of threshold potentials and summation by which individual... Oops, Jesus, it's very sensitive. All right, well, the same thing happens clinically. Uh, epilepsy, seizures, migraines delirium are kind of all-or-none phenomenons. I mean, migraines, you can have a small migraine or a big migraine, but you can't really have half a migraine. I think the same is true with a seizure and delirium. And I'll tell you, maybe I better put this down. <laughs> yeah. All right, well, something's happening now on its own. Does anyone know what's happening here? Will it work now? Okay. Thank you. All right. So one of the concepts I want to stress today is that anyone can have these phenomena. Uh, a seizure, a migraine, or delirium. And it depends on the substrate, whether people are prone to it, as well as the strength of the insult. Okay, if those two things combined exceed the threshold, you can have the clinical phenomenon. So, you know, we're used to calling seizures kind of an ictal phenomenon. The same term can apply to migraines. Uh, rarely to delirium, but it certainly could. So it's a neurologic event. Talk in seizures about 
you know, the post-ictal phase. And a migraine also has uh, a prodromal phase, the ictus, and a post-ictal phase. So I'm introducing some of these terms that I'll use uh, throughout the talk. And so why do these all or none phenomena occur? Well, it's due to the summation of various insults in a, uh, a substrate that's prone, okay? And you can't really have half of one. You know, it's like being dead. You're either all dead or not dead, uh, not partly dead. So we'll see if it, oh, didn't work. I have a little movie from one of my, but it's not working. Some of you may have seen The Princess Bride where there's a nice skit about being all dead or partly dead. That's all right. I'll just keep going. All right, so I'm going to start with delirium. I really couldn't find any good images, but here's a delirious SpongeBob. All right, so what is delirium? Well, it's a disturbance of consciousness, and really the core feature is inattention. Uh, there's some other definitions in the DSM, but I think for the house staff and anyone else here who, uh, who has to learn to recognize delirium, I'll give you some sort of clinical tips. This is the most clinically focused part of the talk. So the other criteria, uh, you know, it has to be due to a medical condition. Might have to stay behind the podium here. All right, so why is this an important topic? Well, it's common. Uh, somewhere between 14%, 50% of all hospitalized patients, and the number is 80 to 85% uh, in the ICO. So this is a very common problem. Uh, it's, you know, brings with it morbidity. It's costly. Uh, it carries a poor prognosis. And this is somewhat interesting. I mean, the jury's still out whether delirium itself injures the brain, because uh, survivors of delirium are more likely to develop dementia. And there's still some controversy about whether these people had low-lying dementia to begin with, and thus were more prone to delirium, or whether there's actually some inflammation or some injury from the delirium that can lead to irreversible damage and more likely to develop dementia. So this is an important uh, illness. And probably in, the med in medicine, uh, Perhaps the last point is the most important, which is that it's under-recognized. You know, if you're in primary care or if you're in the emergency room, you have to realize delirium can be the first and only sign of a pretty serious condition. So you have to learn to recognize it. Um, you know, I've heard before that kind of your most vulnerable organ is the one that fails first. So if you have coronary artery disease and you get pneumonia, you might get an NSTEMI. Or if you have chronic renal disease and you get sick for some reason, you might tip over into renal failure. Well, delirium is when you have a poor brain, you can get sick for another reason and become delirious. So it's, you have to look for the underlying disease if someone presents with delirium, and you have to look for it because it can be the only sign of a serious condition. So this is how I think the best way to uh, diagnose delirium. There's a number of uh, ways to do this, but, you know, Inattention is the core feature. So I like a digit span as the best way to uh, identify inattention for a couple reasons. One, you can follow it. It's quantifiable. So, for example, if someone can repeat three digits to you one day and then reliably, and then a few days later they can repeat five, that person's getting better. Uh, also, there's no language involved. So we deal with aphasic patients often. 
repeating digits, uh, you know, takes that the language part away from you. So you repeat digits one per second. Uh, repeat after me: three, four, nine, two, three, six. Most people can do seven plus or minus two. So if someone is not paying attention, they might only be able to do two, three, or none at all. So I find that's good because you can follow it over time. You can also get a sense of it. Uh, through command following, and I like that also. There is some language, but most patients are not aphasic who have delirium. Again, you can quantify it and follow it over time. So some commands are simpler than others. Axial or midline commands are uh, the easiest. Close your eyes, stick out your tongue. Limb commands are somewhat harder. Show me two fingers. And you can do two-step commands, uh, you know, close your eyes and stick out your tongue. Or complex commands, Stick out your tongue after closing your eyes, where you have to kind of think a little bit. Or, you know, touch your left ear with your right thumb. So uh, you're able to quantify kind of the degree of inattention with these two things. So I think this is probably the best way to uh, identify inattention. Um, you, know, you get a sense of it through their history, but you can often be fooled if you don't look for it. And, you know, a digit span of five... If you say it and they repeat it back, it literally takes 10 seconds. So I think uh, it's pretty important to look for it because, as I mentioned, you can, it can be the first sign of disease. All right, so there's other published ways uh, to screen for delirium. Here's the confusion assessment method. I won't uh, spend too much time on this, but it's worth reading about. It's an algorithm, so anyone can do it. All right, so this is kind of the conceptual framework I'd like you all to think about these episodic phenomenon, which is that, so the blue area, you're fine, no delirium, and then white on top, you have delirium. And it's a combination of a poor substrate with a sufficient insult tips you over the threshold. But anyone can become delirious. Now, you might have a kid who's a healthy, normal kid, but if he does you know, a bunch of angel dust or if he gets encephalitis, a sufficiently severe insult can tip even a completely young, normal kid into delirium. Meanwhile, some medications uh, with anticholinergic properties, some people take them no problem. But as you get older, people have more of a tendency to develop delirium with these medications. So it's the same insult might cause delirium in some people, depending on the substrate. Okay. And then at the far end of the spectrum, you have conditions like dementia or Lewy body dementia in particular, where people are very prone to delirium. Just nightfall might cause delirium in these patients. Uh, so that's the phenomenon of sundown. You're fine, sundowning, where you're pretty fine during the day, and at night you get delirious. So these people, I'm going to talk a little bit later about some hormonal influences on our circadian rhythms. Um, so there's something going on with nightfall. It may just be the lack of visual input, but there may be something else that tips these people over into delirium. All right, so quickly, this is probably somewhat obvious, but the risk factors for delirium are things that cause kind of a bad brain. Uh, no offense, but older age is a risk factor. It's not clear if it's age itself or the uh, comorbidities that often accompany it. Um, certainly pre-existing cognitive dysfunction is one of the big risk factors, and this comes up a lot in the hospital. If someone has some baseline dysfunction, first of all, their family might not recognize it. People who are particularly educated can cover that up especially early on. But 
you know, they can take a long time to recover from an episode of delirium. So we'll often get consults that, you know, this person's been in the hospital for two weeks. They were sick two weeks ago, and they're still delirious. Well, you know, that can happen even without additional insults in people who are way over the threshold. Take some time to get back to normal. So it's important to remember that people with pre-existing cognitive dysfunction can stay delirious for quite a long time. So here's some other risk factors. Uh, depression is very interesting because both with uh, epilepsy, migraines, and delirium, it, it's a very significant risk factor. And it's really not clear if these are, there's a comorbid condition or if we're missing what depression is and whether it's actually causing some of these conditions. You know. So who's at risk? There, there's a number of scoring systems out there. Um, probably won't spend too much time on that. Using those scoring systems, you can identify ahead of time who's at risk of developing delirium, and they work quite well. In terms of what specific insults cause delirium, you know, I, I can never remember acronyms, uh, either the acronyms or what they stand for, but some people like them. So this is MOVE, STUPID. There's a lot of different things that can cause delirium. I'm not going to dwell on the acronym, but how I kind of remember it, you know, probably medications and toxins are among the most common uh, anticholinergics, any sedating treatment. Anything causing or organ failure, you know, uh, hypercarbia, renal failure, liver failure, abnormal electrolytes. Um, thiamines are a very important thing to remember. You know, it turns out on autopsy studies, we miss probably 80 to 90% of Wernicke-Korsakoff syndrome. Um, you know, people learn in medical school about the classic triad of ophthalmoplegia, uh, ataxia, and confusion. But it turns out only 20% of people with Wernicke-Korsakoff have the classic triad, and only 80% have two out of the three. So if you're going to go on that, you're going to miss most of it, and that's actually what happens in practice. So really anyone with delirium, unclear etiology should be given high-dose thiamine in the hospital. It's an irreversible brain damage, and the treatment's a vitamin that's uh, completely benign. It's fairly inexpensive. Um, so generally, if you have confusion, even there's no history of alcohol use. You know, this can be from malnutrition. Lots of other things can, can cause Wernicke-Korsakoff. So we give at least 300 milligrams IV three times a day. Until they, if they start, to, if they respond, you continue it until they stop responding. Because um, usually the response is pretty quick, although not necessarily the dementia. <coughs> then any infections or inflammation, and then four is kind of everything else uh, neurologic. You know, it's, um, I, I chose to spend some time on this because delirium is prim primarily a medical problem. That's what causes it. Uh, the manifestation is neurological, but most causes of delirium are organ failure, metabolic problems, you know, medical causes. So, this is going on its own, but, uh, you know, I won't spend too much time in the approach here. CT scans, uh, I'm not sure the right answer to that. You know, it turns out most people get a CAT scan. Uh, usually, most of the literature says you only need it if there's focal neurologic deficits, but the truth is, uh, for medical legal purposes and also you know, there, there can be chronic subdurals and various other causes of delirium uh, that you need a CAT scan to identify. 
I'll spend a little time talking about this other category, which are the neurologic causes. Oh, that's my daughter. <laughs> now she's uh, 16 months. That's okay. So, my name's Nate Robbins, and we're <laughs> So kind of breezing through some of the neurologic causes of delirium, which maybe you're less familiar with. Uh, it turns out strokes can cause delirium. Uh, it, it's pretty uncommon. One case series was three out of 127 patients, uh, and one of them was subarachnoid hemorrhage, which a CAT scan really should identify. Um, but, you know, usually you have focal neurologic deficits with stroke, but not always. You can have a shower of emboli. You can have non-dominant parietal strokes which can cause delirium. So it's not unreasonable if you've looked at everything else to get an MRI. I would probably advocate for a neurology consult first uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, you know, when I was a resident, I don't think I would have liked to get consulted on every patient with delirium. Uh, but, you know, MRIs can be hard to interpret. I don't mean literally, but the significance of findings, if you have a punctate stroke, is that causing the delirium or not? Plus, they're much cheaper. I think I don't know what a level five inpatient visit bills for, but it's a lot cheaper than an MRI. So, uh, EEG. So it turns out if you exclude all the other causes of delirium that you can look for, a not insignificant proportion of people will be having subtle or uh, uh, you know clinically silent seizures. They're confused. There's no motor movement, but since the digital age, we've been able to do continuous EEG. Uh, with much greater frequency. We've learned that a lot of people in the ICU are having subtle seizures, as well as some patients with uh, delirium. When you exclude everything else, some of them might be having uh, you know, non-convulsive seizures or non-convulsive status. And the percentage of those people varies based on different studies. So we talked a little about the do not miss, Wernicke's. The other ones are quite serious, so you don't want to miss them, but it's less common to miss them. So, now as I've gone over, kind of anyone can develop delirium. You can't really, you know, affect people's age or the dementia, but there's a few things we can do to increase the threshold for delirium. So, first of all, pharmacologic treatment. The truth is nothing really works. Uh, people are always trying to use antipsychotics, but they don't help. Uh, they have anticholinergic uh, activity, which makes things worse. So certainly if someone has agitated delirium and they're a threat to staff, you have to use a sedating medication, but they really don't help. Um, it can make it worse. Melatonin, there, some trials have shown them it, it to, be, uh, to work for delirium, shortening the course, but other trials have not replicated that. On the other hand, non-pharmacologic treatment has been shown uh, to work. It's time-intensive and a little bit of a pain but it does work. So uh, you can see the number needed to treat, not, not that large. So what do we mean by non-pharmacologic treatment? Well, here's a list. Hopefully we can read it before the slide advances. But uh, 
you know, some of the things are pretty easy and obvious, and some of them are not. You know, the people with delirium have sleep-wake cycle problems. So the first person in in the morning, the student, the intern, should really open the blinds, head of the bed up, get these people awake, uh, awake during the day and sleeping at night. You know, they, it seems like very little, you know, very small things, but this is actually what works. All right. So that's enough about delirium. I'm going to talk now a little bit about migraines. You know, unfortunately, we know much less about migraines, believe it or not. But the same conceptual framework applies, which is that anyone can get a migraine, okay? Some people get migraines all the time with no apparent reason. Uh, so those would be the people over on this side of the spectrum. They have a very high structural predisposition to migraine. It takes very little insult to tip them over the threshold. At this end of the spectrum, you know, believe it or not, m most people, if they drink a lot of alcohol, will have a sort of migranous hangover the next day. But a lot of people won't. Some people have never had a headache in their entire life. Um, so those people, no matter what you do to them, they won't get a migraine. So it turns out in people who have migraines, uh, nitroglycerin can precipitate a headache 75% of the time. Uh, so that also includes the cardiac medications. People who are prone to migraines develop headaches with nitroglycerin. But some people do fine. And in between, there's all these other factors. You know, some people develop catamenial migraines. Every time they get their period, they get a headache. I'm going to talk a little bit about why these people who get migraines for no apparent reason might actually be getting migraines. Uh, I'm going to be talking about it in the context of seizures and some research from a friend of mine. But the same thing probably applies for migraines. All right, so in terms of the structural predisposition, unfortunately, we really don't know why people with migraines get migraines. There's very little known. Uh, studies say, you know, suggest it's highly heritable, um, at least 50% from twin studies. But, uh, you know, I would argue it's much higher. Part of the problem with migraines is there's no biological correlate. You know, we have these definitions like psychiatric disease where a bunch of people kind of sit around, experts, and decide what a migraine is based on criteria but it's not based in a physiologic or biologic correlate. So I would argue that a lot more people have migraines than fit the definition. I think a lot of neurologists will, would agree with me. If you have migraine with aura, a first-degree relative is four times more likely to have it in some studies. But again, I think it, it varies, and it's probably much more common than that. Even the epidemiology is not that well understood, possibly because of this definitional problem. You know, as in children, it's one-to-one, -one, male to female. Uh, Generally, as adults, it's a female-predominant disease, either 2 to 1 or 3 to 1. But, you know, the recent research that's coming out shows that men are really under-recognized for migraines. And um, they tend to not report it, and they tend to be underdiagnosed. and the migraines can be atypical. Poor, being poor, low socioeconomic status is a big risk factor for migraines. And then comorbid depression and psychiatric disease again. And it's not clear why this is, whether depression actually causes migraines. You know, part of the problem with migraines is purely based on self-report. So we probably misdiagnose a lot of uh, somatic symptom disorder as migraine. You know, all we have to go off is what the patient tells us. So getting back to the definitions, so migraine without aura. If it, 
you have to last between four and 72 hours. Well, plenty of people have migraines that last two hours, but that's not a migraine according to the definition. Similarly, you know, moderate or severe pain intensity is one of the criteria. Or people have all different uh, pain thresholds. Everyone here who's dealt with patients knows that. Some people, everything hurts. Some people, you know, they go through pregnancy, it doesn't hurt, or they break their leg and nobody knows because it doesn't hurt. So I think these are the problems with the definition of migraine that's used in all these studies, and it's really limited research that there's no real biological correlate. So that's, you know, there's not much more we know about the substrate. There are some identified genetic, uh, you know, abnormalities that cause migraine, but despite the high heritability, there's very few genes that have been identified. So regarding triggers, again, uh, the research has been kind of difficult in this area for a couple of reasons. One, you know, migraine, like seizures, you have a phase. There's a prodromal phase, the ictal phase with headache, although you can have migraines without headache, and then some post-ictal uh, phase. And we call the prodromal phase a premonitory phase, okay? And during that, people can have all kinds of strange symptoms for days at a time. So this is a brain phenomenon. So anywhere in the brain, you can have weird uh, things happen, numbness, etc. But in addition, people get things like craving sugar. So if you crave sugar as part of your prodromal phase, you might have chocolate, because you like chocolate, and then you develop a headache. Well, humans are not good at cause and effect. So they think you have chocolate, you develop a headache, chocolate's the trigger. But in fact, it was all caused part of the migraine attack. Same with bright light. People get sensitivity to light as part of the prodromal phase, and then they say the bright light caused the migraines. But in fact, it was all part of the migraine attack. So we rely on self-report in most studies, which is limited uh, our knowledge of this to some degree. I think most people would agree that uh, there's been some studies to support you know, wine, exercise, barometric pressure. Certainly in some people are triggers. There's a great study a couple years ago uh, in Denmark where they took 27 patients with migraine with aura who said they have triggers with light or triggers with exercise, and they exposed them to their triggers. And it turns out only 17% of patients had an attack. So six out of 27, you, when you expose them to their identified trigger. Uh, four with exercise and two with the combination of exercise and light, and none had a headache with light. So there's a couple ways to interpret that. Uh, you know, the cynical way is that patients really can't identify their trigger, and some people have said that. Uh, but it may be that that's one of many things that are necessary to produce a headache. In other words, all these insults have to summate to get you over the threshold, right? So light might be one, but if you're at the wrong phase of your hormonal cycle, whatever it is, it's insufficient. So maybe they did the test at the wrong time. All right, I'm going to move on to epilepsy here. Oops, this is going on its own. So same framework. Anyone can have a seizure, turns out. Young person who gets encephalitis can start having seizures, right? That's at one end of the spectrum. Someone with no predisposition can have a very severe insult to the brain, develop seizures. And in fact, most, you know, most people, if, if you have a seizure, Two-thirds of people will never have another one, okay? Which goes to show that people can have a seizure with a particular insult, and it doesn't mean they're prone to seizures. Now, at the other end of the spectrum, there's people with epilepsy. Epilepsy, by definition, is when you have two or more unprovoked seizures, 
Okay, so people who are prone to seizures for no particular reason, they're not provoked by uh, medications or alcohol withdrawal. That's what epilepsy is. And then there's everything in between. You know, some people, when you put them on Wellbutrin, will have a seizure, but most people won't. So why is that? Is that an idiosyncratic reaction, or is that just pushing them over the, uh, the threshold? Uh, it's still not really clear. So I'm going to be spending some time talking about some no, new research uh, from a co-resident of mine who's now in Switzerland, uh, talking about some kind of newly discovered rhythms of the brain that might explain why people with epilepsy are having seizures some days and not other days. So, so before that, you know, again, very little is known about the substrate and triggers for epilepsy, like migraine. You know, some people have genetic epilepsy, but it's the minority. Most genes, most even uh, clearly hereditary epilepsy, we don't know the genes. And most people with epilepsy don't have a strong family history. So it's not clear why people have a poor substrate, why people are prone to getting seizures. Uh, Focal epilepsy, you know, most adult onset epilepsy is due to a lesion, a tumor, a stroke, or traumatic brain injury. But most people with strokes don't get seizures. So what is it about those people? You know, maybe the stroke puts them over their threshold for people who are prone, but it's really not known. In terms of the insults, you know, most people identify fatigue, sleep deprivation, you know, alcohol use or withdrawal as triggers for seizures in people who are prone. But... Most people with fatigue don't seize. You know, every uh, intern here would be having seizures right and left. Um, so there's something else going on. But that might be one factor that summates to exceed the threshold. All right, so uh, the next section is from uh, my friend and colleague, uh, Dr. Maxime Bo, who's in Geneva. He gave this talk at the European Academy of Neurology and gave me the slides to present today. He's actually coming to give grand rounds for neurology. August 25th, and he'll uh, go into this a lot more detail. So sorry to the neurologists who will be there uh, August 25th, but everyone else is welcome as well. It's very interesting. All right, so, you know, some people with seizures, you can't control it with medications. So if you have two or more seizures despite, uh, excuse me, if you continue to have seizures despite being on two or more medications at a therapeutic level, that's what defines medically refractory epilepsy, okay? So in that case, some people can get epilepsy surgery where you actually resect the part of the brain that's prone to having seizures. Now, unfortunately, if the part of the brain that's prone to having seizures is your language cortex, you can't take it out. You'll never talk again, and most people don't want that. Uh, or if it's a motor area. So there's some areas of the brain that are not amenable to surgical resection. So you know, probably about 10 years ago now, they developed, or maybe maybe not that long, they developed a de device called a neuropace, which is kind of like a defibrillator for the brain. It's uh, inserted into the epileptogenic area of the brain. When someone starts to have a seizure, it shocks it and uh, aborts the seizure. So a number of patients have this, and what uh, this research group did, so this is constantly in there detecting the brain waves, shocking when a seizure comes on. So it means some patients have months or years of data on when they're having epileptiform activity, which is uh, spikes that tend to occur in people with seizures, brainwave, abnormal brainwave activity. So over months and years, these guys developed an algorithm that basically uh, counts the spikes each day and each hour and each week. It's 
going on its own. <clears throat> and if you do that, you get a count of the spikes over time. So that's what you're seeing on the bottom there. Okay? So this is one patient uh, who had the neuropacin. And you can see that the spikes over time, each day there's, uh, so you can count the number of spikes each day or each hour. And it's well known that people with epilepsy get more seizures at night. So there's a circadian rhythm, but also over many months, there's a multi-day rhythm or a multi, they're calling a multi-DN rhythm, where people tend to have an increase of spikes with some periodicity. Um, you know, it's different for each patient, something like 21 days, 28 days, tends to be a harmonic of seven. And even more interestingly, people tend to have seizures in a certain phase of that rhythm. Uh, most seizures occur on the upswing of the spikes as they're approaching their peak. So those red dots are seizures, and uh, the curve is the spikes. So another way to look at it, uh, the length of the arrow is the strength of the association, and the direction is the uh, refers to in the you know uh, curve where in the curve people are having their seizures and almost all the arrows point up and to the left which means almost all the patients have most of their seizures on the up phase where they're having more and more spikes approaching the peak so if you compare the high risk periods which is you know at night when they're having spikes and during the peak of their multi-day rhythm to the low risk periods you have 16 times the chance of having a seizure during the highest risk phase compared to the lowest risk phase. So there's a lot of research implications, clinical implications to this. We still don't understand what's driving these rhythms. This is very new. Uh, but maybe, you know, you can give a medication during the high risk periods and not during the low risk periods to limit toxicity and uh, to make it more effective to control seizures. And getting back to our framework, this may be one explanation for why some people are having seizures some days and not others, that there's some rhythm in the brain that's tipping them over their threshold, and it summates with the other risks. So why do the people with migraines have, uh, you know, migraines when they're exposed to light some days? Well, it might be in their high-risk period, and those, the summation of those different insults is what tips them over into the ictal phase. <laughs> Okay, I've got a few minutes left. I'm going to kind of breeze through a different kind of threshold. This is some research I've been doing about sensory perception. So, you know, just as a reminder, um, you know, if, if you have a sharp pin on your foot, so a little neuroanatomy, it comes up the nerves, crosses over at the level of the spinal cord, ascends contralaterally to the thalamus, and then to the parietal cortex, okay? Meanwhile, a, a vibratory sensation or a directional touch ascends ipsilaterally, crosses over in the brainstem, and also goes to the thalamus and the contralateral parietal cortex. So clinically what that means, uh, if, if, you, if someone's saying they're numb in the feet, uh, we get a, I do a lot of neuromuscular consultations, and oftentimes they're diagnosed clinically with peripheral neuropathy on the basis of numbness in the feet. But in truth, you can have that from a lot of different places in the nervous system. If you have cervical myelopathy, it can pinch the long tracks. You know, in order to feel sensation, it has to get to the brain. It can get interrupted anywhere. So cervical myelopathy can cause numbness of the feet. Um, radiculopathy, you know, a lot of times as you get older, you get lumbar stenosis or you have uh, radiculopathy. 
And, it, you know, patients often sensation, there's a lot of variability. So they can't exactly, things don't follow the dermatome. So they might complain of numbness in the feet from bilateral radiculopathy, and that's quite common. So all numbness of the feet is not peripheral neuropathy. And as I'll show you, it turns out cognition also influences people's ability to feel things, which makes sense. So I got a hold of a large data set, uh, an NIH study on healthy aging called the Health uh, ABC study. So they took uh, over 3,000 individuals over the age of 70 and followed them for 15 years. And some of these patients, a lot of them, got uh, peripheral nerve testing, um, perineal nerve conduction studies. They got monofilament testing where you, you know, uh, put a nylon filament on the foot and it bends after a certain pressure. So the question is, can you feel it before it bends? It's a way to quantify sensation. And they also did vibratory perception thresholds. So you get a machine that vibrates, and it can vibrate a lot or vibrate a little, and you can quantify uh, at what level people can feel things. So there's a busy slide. A couple of quick things to point out. First of all, the average age was 73 in year one. So at year four, when they did the sensory studies, they were on average 77. Still, uh, you know, in our lab, a normal perineal uh, motor action potential amplitude is two and a half. So the average was three and a half. So people are always saying that peripheral neuropathy is part of aging. And it's really not. Well, it's common with aging as people accumulate disease, but most people in this study had normal peripheral nerve function. So we found, in fact, that cognition is a strong independent uh, risk factor for decreased vibratory perception. They did many mental status exams in year three, collected a lot of clinical and demographic uh, data, whether they have diabetes, whether they use alcohol, age, peripheral nerve function, even including all that in the model, cognition was a strong, uh, statistically significant uh, risk factor for poor cognition. Another way to kind of look at the, it might be easier to look at the magnitude of the effect, uh, we divided into the bottom quartile of cognition, the bottom quartile of vibration perception. And if you were in the bottom quartile on the mini mental status, you had two times the odds of being in the uh, bottom quartile of vibration perception, even controlling for peripheral nerve function, everything else we can measure. And it's a similar thing with monofilament detection, but with a slightly smaller uh, magnitude. So the last five minutes, uh, this got me thinking, you know, many of you may be aware, poor olfaction is actually a risk factor for Parkinson's and dementia. The inability to smell seems to predict neurodegenerative disease, but nobody panic because plenty of people can't smell and uh, don't get this. It's just a risk factor. Um, so I got to thinking, does you know, decreased perception have the same role, sensory perception? And it does. Uh, people who in year three had poor sensory perception had a higher risk of developing, uh, we can't say dementia because it's just with the mini mental status, but certainly low mini mental status uh, scores over the 11 years of follow-up in the study. But it, it's not really an independent risk. If you control for baseline cognition, that effect goes away. So to me, that means that these people have poor vibration perception to begin with because they already have some early cognitive uh, decline. All right, so I want to leave time for questions. So as a summary of what we talked about today, we talked about uh, clinical thresholds in neurology. Uh, we focused on these episodic phenomena 
and I tried to stress the point that anyone can have them. It's really a continuum. It's a combination of people who are prone, a poor substrate with a sufficiently severe insult can tip you over the threshold into delirium, uh, into having migraines, into having seizures. Uh, we talked clinically about delirium, how to recognize it, some things to do to treat it or avoid it. Uh, we talked about migraine, premonitory symptoms and triggers, and then we talked about the rhythms of the brain with epilepsy and finished up talking about a different kind of threshold, the sensory perception thresholds. So uh, a few thank yous. Uh, one of my mentors at UCSF, Vanya Douglas, gave me some of the slides on delirium. Uh, my neuromuscular mentors here, Dr. Cohen and uh, the rest of the gang who taught me so much, I'm very appreciative. Uh, I didn't include it here, but I see him in the crowd, which is uh, Dr. Jim Burnett who um, has been a gr very gracious mentor to me over the last year, uh, giving me a lot of academic opportunities for which I'm very appreciative. Uh, Dr. Bo, who is a good friend of mine and was a co-resident, he's going to be here talking about this stuff uh, August 25th at Neurology Grand Rounds, which is noon on Friday. And uh, I hope you can make it. It's really interesting. He'll tell you in a lot more detail. And then finally, the Health ABC Study Group. Uh, I guess last, I'd like to thank my daughter, who's kept me up a lot so I can think about this stuff. So. Uh, all right, thank you. I'll take questions now. Dr. Cohen. You know, it's always it, the audiovisual stuff. There's this long story. We, we had this interview for someone to be chief of neurology years ago. We really didn't want him. <laughs> Hopefully it wasn't me. But anyway, the AV stuff went on the fritz, and he like totally decompensated. So it was a Nate didn't. But anyway, a question. You know, there's always been this literature about diabetes, alcohol, lipid profiles associated with dementia. So kind of talk about. You've looked at a really big set. Um, how much is how much related to dementia, peripheral neuropathy, things like all of that? Well, vascular risk factors are a strong risk factor for dementia and also for Alzheimer's dementia. You know, a lot of people get diagnosed with Alzheimer's dementia, but uh, some recent data, but I think it's been long known. You know, uh, a lot of people who we diagnose in life with Alzheimer's disease don't have Alzheimer's disease. Uh, there was just a big PET study that came out something like 50 to 70% of patients diagnosed with Alzheimer's had uh, PET scans that showed they don't have Alzheimer's. So we're very bad at clinically identifying it during life. It's a pathologic diagnosis, and there's a lot of overlap between vascular disease and Alzheimer's dementia. Um, so that really you know, obscures a lot of the studies because the gold standard of Alzheimer's disease is in question uh, often, unless you have a pathologic correlate. Uh, you know, The clinical diagnosis of Alzheimer's disease is in question. So... You know, vascular risk factors are definitely uh, a risk for dementia of all kinds, particularly Alzheimer's and vascular dementia. Uh, in this study, it did show that. That was probably one of the biggest risk factors. Um, does that answer it? Yeah. Okay. Yes? There's a really interesting model of the threshold and the summation. So I want to look at that. Would it be that you have summation while the threshold that multiple different so long as they're affected in one area, it should be affected. Is that true for these disorders? 
It generally is true. I mean, our, first of all, migraine is a great example. I mean, pretty much every trial for migraine ends up being positive. Uh, so I don't know why, uh, but, it, you know, look at the breadth of medications that we use to treat migraine. There's the anti-epileptic drugs, the anti-hypertensive drugs. We use vitamins. You know, there's been controlled trials showing riboflavin works, magnesium. Uh, there's so many different medications that seem to work in randomized controlled trials. So probably they are working on different pathways, presumably, unless, the, you know, the, the trials are designed poorly. That's another explanation. But, yeah, I do think there's a lot of different pathways. A lot of uh, different summative steps can result in this. So affecting any one of them will work. Yes, yeah. Thank you for your presentation. Um, you know, you were describing events that trigger perturbations in global brain function, essentially, these unique events, migraine, epilepsy, and delirium. Uh, and you brought up the issue of rhythms in, in, a, in the structure in the brain. And something that's come out recently, uh, which is the area of sleep, uh, and rhythms that develop within, within glial cells, mm. so um, lymphatics, and the whole role of um, synchronized glial rhythms in sleep. And I'm fascinated by the fact that migraine is often triggered by people who sleep in too late, mm -hmm. or uh, certainly epilepsy as you raised, and, and even delirium, which is sleep deprivation. Yeah, you're. I'm curious about whether you correlate any. In terms of intrinsic rhythm disturbances, such as seen during sleep, with any of these phenomena. Yeah, it's a great point, a great question. Uh, of course, I don't think anyone knows the answer to, to that. Uh, yeah, that's been one of the probably most exciting discoveries in neuroscience over the last couple of years. Uh, I think it was in Science or Nature. I can't remember the paper that uh, demonstrated brain volume actually uh, goes down during sleep. There's some role of sleep in reducing extra, whether it's extracellular fluid or something, it reduces brain volume. And there's some suggestion that it's, uh, you know, the coordinated activity we see during sleep may help with uh, getting rid of the excess material. But all these phenomena, you know, are very tied up in sleep. Um, certainly migraines, poor sleep is one of the most reliable risk factors that people identify. Same with seizures. Sleep, we use sleeplessness to trigger a seizure when we want to see what kind of epilepsy people have. Same with delirium. You know, people develop, we, we talk about delirious. I'm so tired, I'm delirious. But, you know, clinically also they develop delirium. Uh, so there's certainly the circadian rhythmicity of these disorders. I don't think anyone really understands what's going on, but it's certainly tied up somewhere. Yes. This is really interesting, but sort of a, a, an observation from a friend who has some sort of seizure activity. And so he in a kind of mystery, they couldn't figure out what exactly was going on, but he noticed the rhythmus and he was quite aware that something was going to happen, and, he was, and then he would plot forward, so, okay, it's going to happen around here. And so I thought it was nice, he was self-aware of that and all that, but when he was seen by the doctors here, he was going, oh, well, I think you're having psychogenic seizures, you're mm -hmm. predicting and causing something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it, it's kind of a, um, an interesting thing. So with that mystery, if you could figure out a trigger there on top of it, you may be able to help Absolutely. People with, um, some people with seizures know when they're going to have it. And they can, uh, you know, at least get to a safe spot. Um, 
You know, this, I don't want to steal all of Dr. Bo's presentation, but the rhythmicity of seizures have been known for a long time. You know, 100 years ago, they used to put people with seizures in uh, asylums, and meticulous doctors would count every single seizure, tens of thousands of seizures. So they knew about the rhythmicity a long time ago. Most patients feel like they can't predict it. It happens out of nowhere, and that's one of the things we use to distinguish epilepsy from psychogenic seizures. But occasionally, people can identify some kind of prodrome. Oh, oh, yes. Um, I, I think you had a slide up, although it moved a little bit. But, <laughs> yeah. but, but, uh, on, on the predictors of sensory uh, perception, diminished sensory perception, mm. and, and some of those predictors were, were just what you expect, age, BMI, diabetes, and you were also pointing out mental status. Right. John asked me to, to ask about height. Oh, yeah. Yeah, what's height doing? Yeah, it's a very I'm interesting... Bad. It's a very interesting thing. Well, uh, you know, I don't think it, it, it's pretty reliable. It comes out in a lot of studies. Uh, when I talked about this with the, at the Neurology Grand Rounds not long ago, uh, Dr. Cohen mentioned one of the studies they did where they also found height was a risk factor for poor sensory perception. Um, you know, I think we all thought probably that height, when you're doing nerve conduction studies, there, the, there's longer for the signal to travel. So you get some phase cancellation and things take longer. But it's not a technical artifact because they actually feel less. Um, and I think it's, a, it's also a risk factor for developing peripheral neuropathy. So whether it's that the axon is so far away from the cell body that it's hard for, I think someone described, you know, uh, nerves are so long if the cell body's here, the axon goes miles. I mean, that's the scale. If the cell body's like this room. So it may be just difficulty getting the proteins down, but I don't think it's quite uh, that it's well pretty understood. It's pretty reliable, yeah. Just to follow up on that, but is, I mean, there's, I mean, you have sensory perception in lots of different places. So you have sensory perception even in a tall person that has a short axon. So is it just if you're testing in the feet, or is it everywhere? I think mostly that what I've seen is done in the feet. I don't, and I guess the arm's slightly longer if you compare arm to arm, but I don't know the, yeah, they did facial perception. Well, Bill, our ears are fine. <laughs> <laughs> oh, not necessary. Any, anyone else? Great, thank you.